Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Athrabeth, a podcast exploring the scorching separatists of Tolkien's Legendarium. <laughs> that was a good one, Jude. Well, we Thank wanted you. to start. Oh, you are so welcome. We wanted to start by acknowledging the strike that's currently taking place here in the U.S. I, I think it's just the U.S. I don't know. Currently, the Screen Actors Guild and American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, SAG-AFTRA, are on strike. They've been joining the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, calling for like better pay, more job security, and trying to get more rights out of all of this streaming crap that's been going on. And yep. so, and, and we fully support this here at Afterbath. Fuck yeah. Support your union. Yeah, and there's a lot of confusion with regards to new media, which I guess podcasts qualify as, where that lands, us not being A, famous, B, members of SAG-AFTRA, or C, like, there's a degree to which it's not clear where, like, talking about old media in a non-promotional way lands. We've gotten some really contradictory answers. So, out of uh, an overabundance of caution... And since we we don't tend to stray into the movies or the TVs too much, other than to say lusty things about Lee Pace lately, <laughs> we're just going to skip discussing the film and TV for the duration of the strike. Unless, I, I guess, unless there is some very clear guidance with regards to discussing previously released media by a non-celebrity actor person. So if you're Joe... Athrabeth on the internet and you're doing a podcast if if SAG says you are explicitly not someone that has to worry about this then sure maybe if it comes up we won't worry about it but until then we would like to err on the side of caution because we are pro-union pro-labor and fuck the studios absolutely yep yep so we're not going to talk about any media other than Tolkien the dude as Jude said and uh <laughs> Tolkien like the written material I am a little bit later on going to mention a film adaptation that never got made. And I checked and it seemed to be because it was never released. It's so it's OK. So I think I think we're OK. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Great. Thanks for straightening that out for us, Jude. That's super helpful. We have some big stuff coming up for Athrabeth. The Tolkien Society's giant conference, Oxenmoot, is happening soon in Oxford and also online. It's Thursday, August 31st to Sunday, September 3rd. And hey, consider attending online if you haven't, if you haven't, you know, already signed up or if you can't be there in person. It's really great online. I've been to it many years online, like since the pandemic started and it's great. And you, we've talked about it before, but Jude and I are going to be there. Yeah. We're excited. I'm not prepared for how soon that is. I know. It's really coming up. And we also, the, the sort of the bigger news is that Atherbeth is hosting a panel. Now. We just found out. Well. I had put in for it and then I hadn't heard anything for a while. And so I figured it didn't go through. And then Jude was like, oh, why are we on the schedule? I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, unless, there's, unless there's a, a, another podcast called the Arthrobeth pa podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's us. So on Saturday, September 2nd, from 1 to 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. British Mean Time, if you're in Oxford, please, please come to our panel. I don't want to say what it's about yet because I am still confirming a couple of panelists who refuse to respond to me. I love you so much, but oh my God, please, which is very scary because we may have to pivot later on, but it's going to be really cool. I have some very cool people lined up. And yeah. I, listen, 
So on online, the thing said that this is only an in-person event. But then when I talked to Monty Thorpe from Oxenmoot, he said it was going to be available online. So I don't know. I will try to find out cool. and we will we will write it on the Discord and Twitter if it is available online. But please, oh my God, I beg of you, for the love of Eru, please come to this if <laughs> you're in Oxenmoot. I, I will buy you dinner and I have stickers and things and buttons and I will give you presents. Please come. I just don't want it to be like Jude and I and our guests staring at each other. That would be sad. I've done it before. I have done <laughs> a, a podcast panel with two guests. Uh, so I was a guest there. Yeah. For it, years. It's happened. It's not actually that bad. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's less scary than the alternative. So no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I, so this is our first time, so please forgive us if it's weird, but um, I, I really hope it's going to be fun. So we'll link to Oxenmoot in the show notes if you want to check it out. And if you're going to Oxenmoot, like in person, please, you know, and you want to like meet us or like say hi, let me know. Let us know on Discord because I want to make sure that we find you. I can get kind of shy. I'm going to try really hard not to get shy, but I don't want to miss you. And I have, as I said, stickers and pins. I need you to take them from me, please. That would be great. So let me know when you're coming and I'll write your name down and we'll find each other. It'll be great. Yeah. Yep. Okay, great. So we also have a sparkly, fancy new five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So I wanted to say a big thank you to the reviewer, Appy Veeks, or it might be Appy Veech. I'm not quite sure. But Appy, thank you so much for your lovely review. That was so nice. Like that always makes yeah. us feel really good. I was particularly tickled by that review because that's ex like exactly... The kind of fan that when we sat down to make this podcast, that was really one of the kinds of things we wanted to do was to be a resource for people who are diving into the legendarium and are excited about the wider world of Tolkien and who are being brought in by movies and TV shows and having read The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings for the first time and are really excited about the deeper material. So I was thrilled with that review. That really made, made my day. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It really it really means a lot. So thank you. We're also having a lot of fun on our Discord right now. Gosh, you are all so smart and amazing and eloquent and so like generous with your time to like write all this really cool stuff to us and to teach us new things like Platy Man, I'm looking at you. You're amazing. So please keep doing that. Gosh, you're the best. Yeah. Um it's such a great little community over there and I'm I'm so touched at Small but mighty. Yeah. Small but mighty. Heck yes. Cool. So thank you again for that. Well, we've got many pyromaniacal paths to tread, so let's begin. Hey, Steph, I was avoiding going to the beach in Cape Cod for the last little bit here. So what are we talking about today? Because you did this. I I literally did nothing except tell you I can't help you find research materials. <laughs> no problem at all. Yes, thank you, Jude. Today, like Jude on the beach, we are talking about the hot, hot, fiery babies of Tolkien's Legendarium. You guessed it. It's the Balrogs. Wait, wait, wait. Cue the air horn. James <laughs> put an air horn in there. Wait, wait, wait. So, like, okay, let's let's do opening impressions. Jude, what are your open people love Balrogs. Let's just say that. They are very mm -hmm. metal. What are your thoughts? Opening thoughts. I think Balrogs are cooler than people think they are. Mm. 
I have to agree. Because I think the, I think Lord of the Rings in all its forms give you the impression of Balrogs as monsters. These implacable monsters. And then you go and read the Silmarillion and A, there's more than one. And B, they are these like captains of Morgoth's army. They are some of his most ardent and most loyal generals. And killing a Balrog is considered like an enormous mark of fame amongst the elves in the sense of like, it's not like any idiot goes out and goes like, I'm going to make my name by killing a Balrog. But <laughs> they have this like an elf who does in extremis find himself forced to face one, writes his name on history simply for having done so. And the ones who do it and survive for any amount of time are are famous for it. Glorfindel, for example, famous for fighting a Balrog, mm -hmm. uh, among others. Yeah. And I think that's really dope that they're not just, you know, fire and smoke uh, or however they're described in the books. I'm sure we'll get into that. You, you have a great outline here where we're going to get into what they are and where they come from and stuff. But I think the, the thing that to me is really cool about them is they are these incredibly important generals in Morgoth's army during the War of Wrath. And their role in the War of Wrath was really important beyond the fact that they were scary, scary fire monsters. I am so glad you said that because out of this giant like 15 page outline, I didn't I don't even think I call that out. So I am so glad you said that. That's absolutely right. They were, yeah, they were pinnacles. They were linchpins of Morgoth's plan to kind of sweep over Beleriand. And we see that again yeah. and again. I also think it's really interesting that they're, they are some of his very, very, very earliest allies. Yeah, let's talk about like, it right now. Yeah. From the, er the earliest days. Well, let's talk about what they are, what yeah. a Balrog is, and then we can talk about where they come from. They're Eidendor, the same class of beings as, as all the other the Valar, the Maiar, all that stuff. Yeah, they're all the they're like it means holy ones. They were the first beings created by Iluvatar. And they are technically within the same class with their Maiar, the same thing as Gandalf and Sauron, but like there's a real wide range when it comes to Maiar. Mm. So I feel like you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Because we don't ever see Gandalf in his full power. And then we, but on the other end of the spectrum, you have like Ossa, who is, you know, the pissy tides. And <laughs> you have the sun and the goddamn moon. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Balrogs. So there, there's, there's a real like spectrum of power there. Arguably, you could even say that like, Asa and Uinen are like more potent, more and have like a wider influence than like uh what's his name? Fucking Hercules. Hercules Valar. Um Oh, uh Orme? No, Tulkas? No. Tulkas, yeah. What is it? Tulkas of Valar then? Oh, that's is what, that, and that's, that's what your I'm point. Saying. Oh, that's your point. Yeah, where Tulkas basically is just a <laughs> like a big a bro with a hearty laugh. <laughs> a strong bro with a hearty laugh. Aw, like, bless. Whereas Asa and Weenan are like worshipped and they fuck up the tides and they soothe the tides. Like they have this enormous reach of influence, both in terms of 
like how people see them and the, the, the way that they affect people and the way that they affect Arda. And what does Tolkas do? He fucking like <laughs> scares Morgoth. And when he shows up and that's it. Yeah. He's, he's, he wrestles Morgoth a couple times. That's it. And I get it. That's <laughs> dope. Like not, not, nobody, not a lot of people can say that Mor- their, Morgoth is afraid to, to, you know, throw down with them directly, but. I don't know. My point is just that there's a wide range of what it means to be a Maiar. So when we say that the Balrogs are Maiar, that just means they're... It, all it means is that Eru drew a line and put some on one side and some on the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were on the nominally lower side of that line. Yeah. And they sure. were specifically spirits of fire. Yeah. I want to say they were... Is it ever said who's like... Because sometimes a Meyer is said to be like associated with a specific Valar. I don't think it's ever said which Valar the Balrogs are associated with. Well, so here is a quote from the Valaquenta section of the enemies. And we hear about how they came to kind of chill with Melkor. Maybe this will answer your question. For the Meyer, many were drawn to his splendor in the days of his greatness and remained in that allegiance down into his darkness. And others he corrupted afterwards to his service with lies and treacherous gifts. Dreadful among these spirits were the Valaraukar, the scourges of fire that in Middle Earth were called Balrogs, demons of terror. So I think I think maybe they weren't associated with anyone, and they were just like, "Oh, who's that sexy Melkor guy? Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I'm drawn to this, you know? Hey, yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, it, yeah, it, it is interesting. Yeah, I, I don't remember if they had a specific association with a uh, with one Valar, the other. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the ones that go bad are associated with Ale, but I don't think these ones actually True. have an association. So I mean, I think, yeah, and I think you're thinking of Sauron because Sauron was definitely an Ale Yeah, and well, that's what I'm thinking. Is, yeah, yeah, I know he's yeah. associated with Correct. Ale. Yeah, well, so dude, tell us a little bit about maybe the Sindarin and the Quenya terms, if you if you don't mind. Yeah, like, no, so what um, does Balrog mean? Balrog is demon of might. In Sindarin. In Sindarin, yes. Okay, okay. And then... The Quenya version is Valarauco, or plural Valaraukar. Okay. I think those are interesting. I think it's what's interesting though is it's so the Sindarin version is a demon of power, bal, the root bal meaning power. Quenya is similar. It's also from the root bal, which in Quenya gets rendered in, as val, and then the same root. Rauko, which means demon, and Sindarin, that becomes Raug. So it's actually the same word that just goes through different transformations, one into Sindarin, one into Quenya. Wow, that's so cool. All right, that makes perfect sense. That's cool. Um, when, you, when you listen to it, it actually, you can kind of hear it, like Balrog, and then Val-la-Rauko. Oh, so yeah. Val-Rauko? Yeah. Val-Rog. Rog. Wow! So, that was so cool. Oh, nice. Thank you, dude. That's great. Mm-hmm. Well, the next question, of course, is like, what do they look like? And I'm going to remind Jude that we're not allowed to talk. We're not talking about the movies or the, or the show or anything. So these are going to be strictly from the text. And I wanted to make the point that there are so many different. Well, not so many. There are many different depictions of the Balrogs from, you know, from different art, different media, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that Tolkien himself also has different depictions of Balrogs that like evolved over time. Yeah. 
Like in the beginning, they were quite different to where they ended up. <laughs> yeah. It, my favorite is that in the beginning, they were basically like, they were like big gobliny looking, not goblin, but like almost werewolfy looking guys. They were mm. like really big, feral,y demon looking dudes. They wore like armor. And I feel like I've seen one where they had like horned helms and they had, uh, I know they had claws. I remember mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah. But they had the whips of fire. I know they had the whips of fire even in the early versions. Agreed. Yeah. So let's go Let's go through some of these early versions because there is an excellent article called Balrogs Being and Becoming by Alan Tierney. It was published in Malorn 49 in the spring of 2010. Remember that Malorn is the peer-reviewed journal from the Tolkien Society. And in this article, Alan goes through all of Tolkien's depictions of Balrogs and how they changed. He like tracks how they changed over time. One of the points he's making in this article is that like, yeah, everyone has this different view of what Balrogs look like. And he is kind of surmising that perhaps like because Tolkien himself like didn't have a clear view over time that maybe that led to some of these you know incongruities yeah. that we see tolkien himself is one of the people who had a lot of different ideas about what yeah. balrogs looked like so it's it's reasonable for all of us to have different ideas about what balrogs looked like exactly exactly and at the end of this paper which we're going to circle back to later in the section about why should we care about balrogs he uh tyranny i think really beautifully vocalizes like how they fit into the mythology and what they mean. So I'm going to come back to that. But let me give you some tidbits from his article yeah. that I thought were great. So in the early drafts of the fall of Gondolin, there were these early versions of Balrogs. And as Jude said, yes, they had claws and they were like made, either they were made of iron or they wore iron armor. From the Book of Lost Tales, part two, section three, the fall of Gondolin, we have this quote. Yet as meed of treachery did Melko threaten Maeglin with the torment of the Balrogs, now these were demons with whips of flame and claws of steel, by whom he tormented those of the Nodoli, who durst withstand him in anything, and the Eldar have called them Malkaraoki. So that's kind of interesting. So we've got claws of steel. That's an interesting take on it. Yeah. Also from the Book of Lost Tales, the same section, we hear this quote, of these demons of power, Excelion slew three, for the brightness of his sword cleft the iron of them and did hurt into their fire. Yeah, Ecthelion is... The Ecthelion of Gondolin is a stone-cold goddamn badass. Yeah, I'm um, going to talk about that later. He's so cool. Yes, he's amazing. Um, one thing I think... We'll t I mean, we can bring this up when we talk about why do they matter, but the fall of Gondolin is, with the Lay of Lethian, two of the, like, foundational texts of Middle-earth. These are the thing, the places where Middle-earth was born, where Tolkien first started forming the themes and ideas and the feel of what Middle-earth was to him. They go all the way back to the beginning, to before Middle-earth. These are the things he started writing that Middle-earth grew out of. So when we talk about, well, why does something matter? If it shows up in The Fall of Gondolin, that's kind of a reason enough alone for something to matter. Yeah. Because if it's from that far, that long ago, this is something that mattered to him. This is something um, that had a a theme or an image or something about that was catching to him or potent to him. And it, especially if it shows up there and it sticks all the way through to the end. Balrogs are 
in the fall of Gondwin from the earliest drafts all the way through, and then he sticks one in Lord of the Rings. So this is obviously something powerful to him, something he thought was, I mean, that's putting a lot of like fancy language. He could have just thought they were fucking cool. Like that's also there. I mean, but it still, that makes it important that it was that cool to Tolkien. That should make it something interesting to us. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, and I did like what you said of like earlier about how the whips were always a thing. I'm going to talk about the whips later on. Alan Tierney makes a great point about them, so I'll bring that up. As Jude mentioned, uh, we also get depictions of Balrogs in the Lay of Lathian from line 1659 to 1662. It says, About him sat his awful thanes, the Balrogs with fiery manes, red-handed, mouthed, with fangs of steel, devouring wolves were crouched at heel. And this we see the claws are gone, but now we've got fangs. So you say we're still changing like how we see these guys. And then in early versions of the Lords of the Rings, if you read History of Middle-earth, Volume 7, The Treason of Isengard, there's a really cool quote that says, A figure strode to the fissure, no more than man high, yet terror seemed to go before it. They could see the furnace fire of its yellow eyes from afar. Its arms were very long, and it had a red tongue. Through the air, it sprang over the fiery fissure. The flames leaped up to greet it and wreathed about it. Its streaming hair seemed to catch fire, and the sword that it held turned to flame. In its other hand, it held a whip of many thongs. I find that much more intimidating than, (laughs) uh, like, the lost cloud monster with some (laughs) fire inside. Or however you want to... (laughs) You know, the later depictions of basically like that are more demonic, but Mm -hmm. like a weirdly distorted human figure that is that calls to flame and and terror goes before it. I find that much more unsettling than something more overtly demonic, which is how a lot of depictions tend to lean into. Yes. Um, Yeah, you're right. That's just me. I think that line, you know, and terror went before it, I think is very, very cool. Oh, yeah. That's super cool. But Alan Tierney, the author of that this article, points out that it is interesting that like that they are at this point the shape of man. And they're also like not that they're pretty short at this early stage in their development as characters. Yeah. Right. Like they're like man sized or a little bit more. But we know in the end they are enormous. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. In the final. Oh, I loved this point in the final version of The Lord of the Rings. Alan Tierney notes that Tolkien made three very important changes. This is exactly what you were just talking about, Jude. He makes three important changes to the Balrogs. First, the Balrog's shape becomes indistinct, right? So they lose that man shape. The appearance of the (laughs) Balrog... Cloud monster, exactly. The appearance of the Balrog was implied to be subjective, okay? And then the motif of shadow was used for the first time. So we start with, they become these shadow babies. They become the cloud monsters. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad you kind of like t- said that you think these earlier drafts are like kind of more metal than maybe what they ended up in. I think they're, yeah, I think they're fascinating to see. I think Tolkien had a clear idea of what he wanted to communicate. I think he was struggling to nail down how to describe that and what he especially as he matured as a uh, as a writer you can see the evolution of the balrog from like a, a more classically like nordic epic demon figure basically like a something that would be akin to like one of the um 
uh, what are the the like snow uh, the ice giants oh, from like, like the frost Nord- giants mm-hmm. uh, frost giants or uh, or just one of the or are more sort of like demonic figures or something like that into a more abstract kind of yeah figure, right which I think is something that a lot of Tolkien's work does mm. is it starts out as epic mishmash like Tolkien mm-hmm. picking and choosing the stuff from these myths and tales that he likes. And then the more time as he goes over and over and over again, the pieces that he likes rise to rises to the top as he, and he filters out the, the more sort of tropey bits. And he, he really ends up with this real pure distillation of what he likes about it. And he tends to lean into some of that stuff. And ironically, he ends up making a lot of really pure tropes that, we now recognize as like the purified tropes of fantasy in a lot of ways, but that's because he was, he ended up having such a clear vision of what he wanted in this story. Um, and he spent so long working on it that I think a, a lot of the, the, the stuff in the past, the, the previous stuff that he was drawing from, he, he had rare, you know, refined out to his own thing. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. He, he was putting things in his culture in a story, right. And then taking out what he wanted yep. from it. Yeah, it is really cool to see. So I have to say, that's such a great article. Thank you, Alan Tierney, for like doing all the legwork and finding all that for us. It's great. I unfortunately can't link to the article because it's behind a paywall. But if you are a member of the Tolkien Society, you can download it from their website. And I will put the citation in the show notes. I am going to bring it up again. So we will hear from Alan once more. But let's talk a little bit. Let's just, I mean, I think um, people, even if you have a passing knowledge of Tolkien, kind of know what Balrogs are, but let's just quickly go through what they look like from the published text, okay? So this is what ended up in the final version. So we guess, of course, we meet them in the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. We meet one of them. We've got some really cool evocative quotes. What it was could not be seen. It was like a great shadow, in the middle of which was a dark form, of man-shape maybe, yet greater, and a power and terror seemed to be in it and go before it. We also have another quote. The flames roared up to greet it and wreathed all around it, and a black smoke swirled in the air. Its streaming mane kindled and blazed behind it. In its right hand was a blade like a stabbing tongue of fire, and in its left held a whip of many songs. It's also described as like a fiery shadow. I wanted to read this next quote because it this becomes a point of debate that which we'll which oh we'll God, talk about wings. at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have a whole section on wings at the end, so hold your thoughts, dude. But here's the quote. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. It raised the whip, and the thongs whined and cracked. Fire came from its nostrils. Later in that fight, remember when Gandalf shouting at it to go back? He calls it the Flame of Udun. I looked on Tolkien Gateway, and they say that Udun means the death, and that they kind of associate it with hell. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. That's kind of cool. Woo, that's cool. So it's a cognate for Utumno, yeah. which is Morgoth's fastness in the north. Okay. Oh yes, so right. The a flame of a flame of Udun would is essentially him saying like calling it uh, a basically a fa- you know a spirit of Utumno, Mor- a spirit of Morgoth's realm. Which I guess it, it's valid to to say that that's a a equating that with hell yeah that's cool that's really cool 
again, to bring up those those pesky wings again, that we have this great moment when Gandalf's basically telling it to fuck right off. It goes, the fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height and its wings were spread from wall to wall. Later in The Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf, so this is in The Two Towers, chapter five, The White Rider, when Gandalf is, spoiler alert, back from the dead, he is telling Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli about the fight, and he says, quote, His fire was quenched, but now he was a thing of slime, stronger than a strangling snake. And I thought, whoa, that's pretty different. Like, a, all of a sudden, he's kind of slimy and gross. Ew. Ew. I expect that that is a metaphor. I do not think oh. it actually was a thing, like, it actually turned into, like, a slime monster. I, I think... <laughs> Depends on fan I, I fiction sus- you're reading. Hey, sorry. Go ahead. We know that we know that Gandalf was discorporated by that fight, and I suspect there was a degree to which that fight like went semi incorporeal. And yeah. I, I just don't know that. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but my sense is that that he is not saying literally it was a thing of slime. I don't know though. I could be wrong. Yeah, pretty cool. It's cool to think about. Well, of all of the Balrogs, and we'll mention this later about like the, oh, well, I guess we could talk about it now. There is like, so I, I think earlier in the Legendarium, there were quite a ton, a big bunch of Balrogs. There were a lot of them. And this is at a time where they were not as powerful as they were in the final versions of Tolkien's work, right? And in the final versions of Tolkien, so he made them more powerful, but he made them less numbered. And there, I don't remember if I'm going to read it later. I think it might be somewhere. There's a quote, like one of the last things we ever hear from Tolkien before he passes about Balrogs is that there's sort of seven at the most of them, which I think is kind of interesting. But of Mm -hmm. those seven, there's only two that get a name and really only one that gets a name. And what a name. So we hear about Gothmog, who we're going to hear all about later. And we also hear about Durin's Bane, who was slain by Gandalf, who we just heard about a bunch. So, yeah, keep those two in mind as we go through. So, like, let's break. Here's the thing. There's actually a lot of Balrogs in the greater legendarium. As Jude said. Yeah, there's a whole fuck ton of them. Yeah. Fall of Gondolin, fuck ton of them. Baron and Luthien, there's some there. There's a ton of stuff in the Book of Lost Tales, parts one and two. So let's just go through. I'm going to start and let's talk a little bit about Balrogs in the Silmarillion. What we know of the Silmarillion is that it kind of is the Cliff Notes version of a lot of the stuff that mm-hmm. Tolkien was writing. So let's use that as our base and we'll dive into it. All right. So the first time we hear about the Balrog babies, I guess, well, that's not true. We hear about them as we talked about already when they were first when they first decided to defect and go hang out with Melkor. But after Melkor destroys the two giant lamps, remember that the first light they sort of had in Middle-earth were these two big old lamps that Aule made for his wife, Yvanna. And Melkor's a dick and he decided to pull them down. He didn't want them up there anyway. Yep. The Valar were pretty pissed when that happens. So Melkor decided, oh, I gotta, ooh. Uh, He called all of his Balrogs and all of his boys to, as Jude mentioned already, Utumno, his fortress in the way, 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 tippy-top north of Middle-earth. The quote is, and in Utumno he gathered his demons about him, those spirits who first adhered to him in the days of his splendor and became most like him in his corruption. Their hearts were fire, but they were cloaked in darkness and terror went before them. They had whips of flame. 
Balrogs they were named in Middle Earth in later days. And then, you know, they're a Jude, you mentioned that you really liked that terror went before them. Clearly, yeah. Tolkien did too, because it made it to the final version. So that's cool. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's also noteworthy. This is an interesting point here that I think should be called out very specifically, that those spirits who first adhered to him in the days of his splendor and became most like him in his corruption. Ooh. These were spirits that were drawn for whatever reason, and it's never said specifically what drew them to Morgoth, but they are drawn to Melkor in his splendor and fall into corruption like him, like Melkor, as he becomes Morgoth. And I think it's also worth noting that we never see a Balrog in the service of Sauron. Oh, right. Well, yeah, because they were sort of, if you were looking at like a, a hierarchy or like an orc chart, they were on the same line of reporting as Sauron, right? Because he was also a Maiar. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, I mean, Sauron theoretically has Maiar working for him. Oh. But, I mean, that would not be out of like, out of place. That would not surprise me, him having Maiar working for him. But I just think it's interesting that he... Tolkien goes out of his way to make sure that there's no Balrogs working for Sauron at any yeah. point. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is pretty... He's happy to put... He, he puts one in the Lord of the Rings, but he doesn't... It's not working for Sauron. It's fucking chilling in a mine somewhere. Yeah, Not that own far thing. From, from, from the action, but definitely not Sauron's buddy. Yeah, I wonder if, like, Durin's Bane had not been killed by Gandalf... Would it have heard the call? Like, it, it wasn't attracted to the ring. That was Sauron's thing. So, like, would it even have woken up? Like, it might have totally missed that whole thing if it had just stayed sleeping. Could have been a fourth age Balrog. That would have been crazy. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> hey, man, there's no more elves, but here's this thing you got to deal with. One for you. Yeah. So, okay, the fortress was destroyed by the Valar because they were mad about the lamps and the Balrogs ran away and they hid in the west in the pits of Angband uh, waiting for Melkor to return. Basically, when, so this is, we're in the Quintus Silmarillion chapter three of the coming of the elves and the captivity of Melkor. Basically, there's a quote that the Valar, they didn't go into all the vaults and the caves under the fortress of Angband and Utumno. So because they didn't, they didn't do a full sweep. Many evil things were kind of allowed to hang out uh, and they fled and flick fled into the dark. So again, yeah. the Valar had somebody had an inventory like, let's make sure we go everywhere. Well, and okay. What the I, heck? I have ranted about this <laughs> as well. But in due, in due fairness, nah. uh, the reason why they don't do that is because the only way for them to really do that is to like crack open Utumno oh. and the elves had not awoken at that point. Mm, like a wild and nut. their concern is that if they crack open Utumno to get to all these little bugs down in the deep there, that they don't know where elves are sleeping. Oh, right. And it turns out they're not far away. Yvian <laughs> is a, a, a solid stone's throw mm. from Utumno. It's south of, it's southeast of Utumno, but not that far away. And if they had, you know split the continental plate to try and get down in there. Yeah. They might have I mean, squished them. The I mean, when they tried to when they tried to clear out Morgoth the last time, they sank Beleriand. 
And I think that's one thing that... Not yet in the timeline, it's, but yeah. It's wild to me that Tolkien doesn't like emphasize this because it makes the Valar look like fucking chumps. Yeah. Like he kind of offhandedly mentions it, but it's that the Valar don't, when they go out to war, they don't like carry swords. Like I don't think that, I don't <laughs> imagine Tulkas and Manwe and all those guys they don't have, they're not carrying swords when they go to battle with Morgoth. Mm -hmm. Feanor invents swords like two, an age and a half later. Huh. They go to war with their power, mm. with their influence. They their raise up the mountains <laughs> and they, they turn the wind and the fire against each other. Wow. They are incorporeal. Yeah. Elemental. Aspects of the world. Yeah. And that's how they fight. And so if they're going to get those things down there, the only way for them to do that is to sh reshape those mountains. Mm. So it's a reasonable fear that they would wipe out the children. Oh, fine. I'll give it to you. You're right. <laughs> they didn't have, if they didn't have swords and they also no, didn't have a clipboard or a you're flashlight. Right, <laughs> it's, it's a valid, it's a, it's a valid complaint because Tolkien doesn't like, it's such a, it's such a big, like, why didn't they just do it? And it's like, oh, well, they were concerned that if they dug them up, they would crack the continental plate straight across. Yeah. Because it's a flat world. Like, you snap, oh, you, right. you bend it too far. It's like it's like bending a dinner plate. You crack and everything falls through. Like That's true. Yeah, like peas on the floor. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you little peas. Okay, I like that. I'm glad you said that. That's really helpful. Because I, when I read that, I was like, geez, guys, for goodness yeah. sakes. But you're right. You're right. You do have to sort of read in between the lines to get there, but that's cool. Yes. So let's see. We get Balrogs again after Morgoth and his spider buddy Ungoliant steal the Silmarils and escape from Valinor. Remember, Ungoliant attacks Morgoth and like tries to strangle him to steal the Silmarils. And he like cries out like, no, don't steal my jewels. And the Balrogs hear this and they travel to Lamoth, which is a shoreland in northwestern Beleriand, uh, also called the Great Echo. Oh, which comes from him screaming and crying, which I think is mm -hmm. interesting. And yep. they basically the Balrogs come in and they totally destroy Ungoliant's web and they scare her away, which is great. It's a great. It's that's from chapter uh, nine of yeah. the Flight of the Doldor. <laughs> we should talk about Ungoliant sometime. She's fucking weird. We I, I thought we have talked about spiders, but if not, that would be a great. I, I would love that. Yeah, She's no, cool. we have never had an episode specifically about yeah. spiders or Ungoliant, but she's one of those weird question marky things. Like, where does she come from? Fuck if I know. Where does yeah, she go? I, know. I guess she gets too hungry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. That seems yeah, yeah. weird for something that has no beginning. Whatever. Yeah. Let's talk about the elves, though, in the Balrogs. So, because the first time the elves really encounter them is during the Battle Under the Stars, the Dagor Nuin Giliath, which was the second battle of the War of Beleriand. Okay. So, just to remind you, because I, if you listen to Atherbeth, you know this story, but basically, remember, Feanor and his stupid sons, they like kill all the Teleri yeah. and steal the ships and they leave their friends behind and they sail across, right? And they get to Middle Earth and they decide that they're going to burn. This is. Well, Feanor decides he's going to burn yeah, the Teleri. This is ships. how dumb Feanor is. Yeah. So he to burns the this, ships. Burns the ships. They get to Middle Earth. And the first thing he does is like charge up into battle with Morgoth's forces. Well, Okay, hold on. So they, so they burn the ships. The fire is so bright that not only can their kin, who they left to walk their asses to Middle Earth, can see it, but also 
Morgoth's forces can see it. And so the baddies yeah. come in and they jump Feanor's camp. And this was the battle I'm, under the stars. It, but I, I absolutely love that Feanor gets to Middle-earth and literally has time to fucking, like, drink from a canteen and then he gets <laughs> mugged by Balrogs and dies. He was hoisted by his own petard. He was. It must be emphasized that Feanor's fucking arrogance was so profound that he is attacked by a a gang of Balrogs, something no one has ever seen before. Mm-hmm. And his response is like blah 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 blah, and he just chases them. Yes, yes. That's exactly that's chases a great after point. Them. He just chases them. So the battle actually went, even though they were unprepared for that battle and, the, and like getting jumped, they actually did pretty well. And they were pushing the enemy back. And Feanor, as Jude said in his like, I'm so great, look at me, decides to run after them and chase them. And he gets too far ahead of like the rest of his bros. And they basically f- double back on him. They surround him and they he has this like, big epic fight this is something we've talked about a lot with the silmarillion and remember that it is a heavily biased document and that it's actually not written as a very epic fight it's kind of written that he gets his ass handed to him but it's yeah, also he gets implied by gothmog that he yeah. but he does like fight for a while with them like it kind or at least it, i feel like it's implied that he does that but yeah so gothmog at who we mentioned is one of the two balrogs who's actually named he is the Lord of Balrogs. He basically came, comes in and uh, squishes, squishes Feanor. Feanor goes squish. <laughs> yes. I love and... your note here. <laughs> Any thoughts about this interaction of Feanor and the Balrogs? <laughs> what do you think? I know. I, I was like, I wonder if Jude's going to have... Uh, so, so, okay. So Feanor dies and Morgoth sends a host to Feanor's son, pretending to like acknowledge defeat and say, we'll give you a Silmaril. Would you like a meeting with Morgoth and Majros, the eldest who's son? Who's dumb enough to go for that? Well, oh, that's right. I'm glad you mentioned it. It's Majros, the eldest son. He decides this is a great idea. But surprise, surprise, of course, the baddies show up with way more people than they promised and a group of fucking Balrogs. And Majros is, of course, well, his company is slain and he is captured. And it just doesn't pays, go that well. He pays for his hubris with his right hand. He do- It's true. It's true. And then I wanted to mention, too, that like, so we have, I don't like, we can kind of skip a little forward, but there's lots of instances in the Wars of Beleriand in which Morgoth kind of just stayed in Angband and he sent out the Balrogs to like fight all of his battles, right? I think that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Yeah. For one thing, he didn't feel the need to. And mm-hmm. for the second, I think he felt that it would, if he came out into the open, it would provoke the Valar into action. Yeah. As long as he wasn't out in the open, the Valar didn't have an excuse to come out in the open. Yep. Yep. That's great. I'm going to skip a couple of Balrog uh, things, but I do want to talk about- Yeah, I think that- Yeah. I do want to talk about chapter 20 of the fifth battle. Oh, no. I can never say this word. Nierneas Arnoidiad. Okay. Thank you. The battle of unnumbered tears. We know I cannot pronounce that. So this is where we see Gothmog again, and I'm going to get- The Cliff Notes version is, so he attacks- King Fingon. Okay. And I think it's interesting because we get one of the more graphic deaths that we yep. sort of get in the Silmarillion. And I'll read it. At last, Fingon stood alone with his guard dead about him, and he fought with Gothmog until another Balrog came behind and cast a throng of fire about him. Then Gothmog hewed him with his black axe, and a white flame sprang up from the helm of Fingon as it was cloven. 
Thus fell the high king of the Noldor, and they beat him into the dust with their maces, and his banner, blue and silver, they trod into the mire of his blood. Like, holy shit, whoa. Mm -hmm. That's like a big turn from, like, basically them being like, and they killed Feanor, you know? It sounds like a mighty battle. This is also when Gothmog captures Hurin, father of Turin Turabar, everybody's favorite slash least favorite putts. (laughs) Before we move on to our next point about Balrogs, why don't we press pause for a second? Because there is so much more to discuss about these fiery babies, and we don't think we can fit this all into one episode. So we will be continuing this discussion of Balrogs next month. So stay tuned. This fiery road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram and Mastodon and also threads at atherbeth underscore cast. Threads. I know. I know. Jude can be found at Aramedic Jude and I can be found at the North Four. Our producer, James Kaku Pearson, who edits our episodes and makes us sound so good, can be found at Jay Pearson on Twitter. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond5. Additional music and sound effects licensed by Soundstripe, which can be found at soundstripe.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Because what I have come to learn over these like five years of doing this podcast is that that the Cimmerillion, am I saying that right? Oh my God. Silmarillion. Oh my God. How do I forget how to say that? I don't even have much sleep. Sorry. The Silmarillion. Jesus Christ.